It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as the Hockey Canada investigation continues, we look at whether non-disclosure agreements should be banned in sexual misconduct settlements. Plus, bridge traffic continues to go south of the Fraser and declining to the North Shore. It's a time to reevaluate where our infrastructure dollars are going. Plus, as BC marks the one-year anniversary of drug decriminalization, we look at whether the province should follow Oregon's lead and reverse the law. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Five players from Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team are facing sexual assault charges, but so far it appears as if only one player has surrendered to police. Uh, Alex Formanton, who plays internationally, surrendered to police uh, in London, Ontario on Sunday. His lawyer confirmed that uh, he has been charged in connection with the case and said the player would plead not guilty. Uh, Through their own legal representatives, the four other players say they also intend to uh, plead not guilty. The accused players have all been allowed to go on uh, indefinitely from their Pro clubs. Now, the alleged group sexual assault of a woman uh, occurred following a Hockey Canada gala where the players were honored for their victory at that uh, year's World Junior Tournament. Mackenzie, Mackenzie Gray, who was a reporter with Global National, looked at this story uh, just the other day. Take a listen to his report. The identities of the former Canadian World Junior Hockey team members said to be involved in an alleged group sexual assault of a 23 year old back in 2018 are now public. Legal counsel for four NHLers, including star Philadelphia Flyers goalie Carter Hart, Mike McLeod and Cal Foote of the New Jersey Devils, and Calgary Flames forward Dylan Dubé have confirmed the former World Junior team members have been charged with sexual assault by London, Ontario police. Now, uh, Carter Hart's lawyer tweeted out that he is innocent and will provide a full response to this false allegation in the proper form, a court of law. Foote's lawyer also maintained that his client is innocent of the charge and will fight to clear his name. A similar sentiment shared by separate statements for counsel for McLeod and Dubé as well, saying they deny any criminal wrongdoing, will defend themselves in court, and will be pleading not guilty. Now, their former World Junior teammate and former Ottawa Senator Alex Formanton surrendered to police in London, Ontario on Sunday. His lawyer confirmed he's been charged in relation with the alleged group sexual assault, but stated Alex will vigorously defend his innocence and ask people not to rush to judgment without hearing all the evidence. Now, the Globe and Mail previously reported five players from the 2018 World Junior Team have been told to surrender to police in London to face sexual assault charges. All five of these players took leave of absences from their professional teams recently, with the Calgary Flames saying that Dubé left the club to deal with, quote, his mental health. Now, so far, Donna, London police have not commented on the potential charges, but they have said they're planning to address the case in a press conference on February 5th. That was Global National's Mackenzie Gray reporting. Now, it's important to note that none of the allegations have been proven in court. Uh, but since 1989, Hockey Canada has paid out $7.6 million in several sexual assault-related settlements, and some of the claimants involved in settlements were bound by non-disclosure agreements. In the wake of the Hockey Canada schedule, some advocates are calling for the use of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs to be banned or restricted in settlement uh, agreements in cases involving abuse. Joining me now to talk about 
uh, NDAs and in cases of abuse is Julie McFarlane. She's a distinguished law professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of the Can't Buy My Silence campaign for change in the law on the misuse of NDAs. Uh, Ms. McFarlane, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jez, for having me. Uh, Why do you think it's taken this long to have this conversation? About NDAs? Yes, NDAs, NDAs and particularly around abuse. Well, it's, it's a fair, that's a really very good question. Um, I think the reason is that this has crept very slowly and, and, but, but very steadily into legal practice. So just to give you an idea of where did NDAs come from, because I do think this is often useful looking at how something has evolved, where it started. NDAs were invented by the tech industry, basically, in Silicon Valley in the 1970s because judges didn't like giving what was then called restraint of trade orders to prohibit their employees from moving on to other competitors. And if something wasn't protected by intellectual property, but it was, you know, a development in progress, they obviously didn't want an employee going to another competitor and spilling the beans. Mm. So that was why they came up with the idea of, of contractual obligations, which is what an NDA is, which was forever. These are indefinite forever obligations, and that's very important to understand. And then just gradually, and we don't know enough yet, we don't have enough data yet um, to know exactly when, but gradually these have become a default in every other kind of civil settlement. So we're seeing consumer disputes that are settled with an NDA. We're seeing construction disputes, financial services disputes. Um, I, I even heard from somebody whose child had been injured by a shark at a resort, and they were asked to sign an NDA in order to receive a settlement. And yes, very much in the case of sexual abuse and sexual assault. Hmm. They are now the norm. So uh, in this case, what your organization and, and the cause that you're talking about here, uh, they just want to make sure that you're not against NDAs, but certainly into the case of abuse, uh, they should be banned. Exactly. It's actually very important to get this point across. We're not arguing with the original purpose of NDAs. They served, you know, a legitimate trade commercial purpose. But if you start using them to cover up and the things we're focusing on, particularly in the legislation we're proposing, are sexual misconduct, harassment and discrimination, um, because they are used a lot in workplaces where people complain about any of those things and then they are let go, but only if they will sign an NDA. Hmm. So that means effectively that the person who has done whatever it was that was being complained about, sexual harassment, racial discrimination, is now able to pass to another workplace with nothing on their record, nothing that shows that this was behavior that has been investigated and found to have happened because the victim um, has agreed that there will be no disclosure of any kind. And I should add that they do that usually under pressure. If you want this money, you have to sign an NDA. So in the case of this investigation to Hockey Canada, it's a criminal investigation. Uh, but as I was saying, Hockey Canada has paid out $7.6 million in several sexual assault-rated right. settlements, and some of those claimants involved in the settlements were bound by uh, NDAs. If the police wanted those individuals who have signed those NDAs to testify, they would still be compelled to testify because it's a criminal investigation, and that is still considered that the NDA is a, is a civil agreement. That doesn't override uh, anything in regards to police saying you got to testify yes. or prosecutors saying so. 
You're, you are absolutely correct. Um, no NDA can prevent somebody either reporting to the police or testifying about the matter in court. But the problem is this, that people who have signed NDAs and who very often don't realize until after the event, because it's obviously a very stressful time for them, that they have, in fact, signed an obligation to speak to nobody about what happened. They don't necessarily know about enough about the legal system to understand that this doesn't prohibit them from going to police. That is just as you say, it's not a matter of using this to then, you know, bar their access to criminal complaints. And, you know, part of the, part of what I feel was so, so wrong about what happened in the Hockey Canada case was that the police could have investigated this properly in the first place. But instead, they did what so often happens, which is they allowed the organization to take it back again. And then they did make a settlement in 2022. But they initially, it's been lifted, they initially imposed an NDA. So there's a way in which the criminal justice system is maybe unintentionally facilitating the civil resolution of matters that then have the victims silenced. Uh, is there any jurisdiction in this country right now that that, that is working towards uh, uh, eliminating these NDAs in the case of of, uh, of abuse? Yes, so, yes. In fact, we have one province that has already passed what we call our model bill, which we first developed in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and that is Prince Edward Island. Um, and, you know, it was, it's a very interesting story because it's a very small place. Mm-hmm. There was very widespread knowledge of a particular highly placed individual who committed multiple acts of sexual harassment against women and had NDA'd them all. And that propelled a kind of public disgust about it. And that legislation was passed in 2022. There's similar legislation now pending um, due to come back for debate in Nova Scotia, British Columbia, Ontario, and most recently Saskatchewan. So this is an ongoing issue, not only in BC, but other jurisdictions uh, in the US and, and, and exactly. as you're mentioning Ireland as well. So that's a good thing. Yes. Yes, and Australia. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. So uh, do you think there's uh, we can go further even uh, with perhaps, not banning, but reducing the use of NDAs even in the context of business or in civil disputes as well do you think they've just it's just the practice has gotten out of hand because sometimes it may even uh, hinder uh, whistleblowers who are acting in good faith and saying oh, the right yes. thing yes that's quite correct well i mean i would ideally myself and my partner in the campaign zelda perkins um, who was the first woman to break her Harvey Weinstein uh, NDA. We would both like to see NDAs banned also in cases of civil, uh, sorry, commercial consumer disputes, financial disputes. It shouldn't be necessary if the bank takes money from you um, illegally to sign a non-disclosure agreement to get your money back, you know? Mm -hmm. So there are many other ways in which I think NDAs have permeated. But the first step, um, is to try to do something about this in cases of abuse. And, you know, we do work with the profession, with the legal profession and with businesses and with universities to try to move them to a place that they will voluntarily pledge that they will not use NDAs in the future. And that's, very, uh, that's been very important. And, and we've had a lot of support especially from universities, um, but also from some businesses in that respect. But I think legislation is how you will actually change the practice. And it will also mean that the public will be more knowledgeable, 
hopefully as a result, about the fact they do not need to sign an NDA in order to get settlement. Ms. McFarland, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate uh, your time and enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jax. So we will be heading towards the polls uh, in October of this year, provincial with a provincial election. And as you know, everybody is following uh, every poll that comes out these days because it's quite interesting in regards to uh, what is happening in British Columbia. Uh, many have talked about a tectonic shift potentially in BC politics. Well, a new poll from Research Go shows that the governing BC New Democratic Party keeps a double-digit lead over its closest uh, competitors here in BC. In an online survey uh, sample, 46% of decided voters said they would support the BC NDP candidate in their riding for provincial election were held today. That's down two points um, since September of 2023. But certainly, when you hear 46%, that is a very comfortable uh, majority government. Now, the Conservative Party of BC is in second place with 25% support. That's up six uh, percentage points since September. And BC United, which is the official opposition, uh, is sitting at 17% support. Uh, that's three uh, percentage points down from the last poll in September. And the Green Party is at 11%. Joining me now to talk a little bit about these results and what we're seeing in BC politics before we head to the polls uh, in, in October is uh, Mario Conseco, president of the Research Co-Polling Company. Mario, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jess. Great to be here with you. So what, uh, in regards to top-line uh, analysis, what are we seeing here? Is this the ongoing tectonic shift in BC politics that we've all been talking about? Uh, what makes it particularly compelling for the BC Conservatives is that they're really getting a lot of people who supported the BC Liberals in 2020. One thing that we look into is the retention rate. You head into a new election, are you holding on to the people who supported your party in the last one? That number is at 83% for the NDP. So the notion that David Eby was going to lose some supporters uh, because he wasn't John Horgan isn't really playing out. What is playing out is that only 41% of those who voted for the BC Liberals in 2020 under Andrew Wilkinson are saying that they would vote for BC United. So you're losing half of your voter support from 2020. Uh, a lot of it is going conservative. Some of, the, some of it is going to the NDP. Uh, but it's very different to defend territory when half of your uh, your your a, a base is essentially saying, uh, I'm looking at other options that are not BC United. Uh, any sense of why that base is looking elsewhere? I think there's a couple of factors at play. Uh, the numbers were actually better for Kevin Falcon as leader uh, before the, the change of the brand. Uh, he was at one point at 44% when it came to his own approval rating. Uh, now he's down to 31%. So it's definitely not working well in that sense. There's a difficulty trying to connect. And there's also an important aspect of this, which is the center-right voter who is dissatisfied with the NDP, who won't vote for the NDP is now looking at the BC Conservatives as an option. If you're 18 to 34 or 35 to 54, you're more likely to say, if you're not voting for the NDP, that you're voting Conservative. But the over 55 is more likely to be saying they will vote BC United. So there's a little bit of a ray of hope there because we know that the over 55s tend to vote more. Uh, but it's definitely nowhere near the numbers that I think they envisioned when they uh, unveiled the, the the new brand. How much of this has to do with the BC Conservatives doing well because Pierre Polyev uh, federally is doing well, and there may be some uh, you know confusion uh, in regards to brand uh, because people may be angry and thinking, okay, I like the federal guy, I guess I'll vote 
uh, provincially or, or, or confused, number one. And then add to that, moving from a, a name like BC Liberal Party, whether you liked them or not, that was a known entity in this province, then going to BC United. How much of those supporters, uh, the, the BC United sort of numbers, are based on people, A, being confused in your mind, and B, you know, may have said they're going to support uh, this opposition party if the original name was still there? Um, I think there's a combination of both. You know, one thing that we were really curious about was the level of undecided voters, because when we checked in September, it was at 18%, which is significantly higher than what you usually see. Now it's down to 13%. So I think part of it is the actual confusion of the brands federally and in BC uh, dying down a little bit. Um, the other thing that is quite remarkable is we've never had an opportunity to measure the level of support for the conservatives because they don't run in every single riding. So when you're getting close to the election, particularly in the cases of 2017 and 2020, you can't really ask people if they're voting conservative if there's no candidate in their riding. Now, I think what we're seeing is people who know that there's a conservative candidate in their riding. They've been announcing a lot of people recently. And it shows in some of the regional breakdowns in areas where the BC Liberals used to dominate, you know, Southern British Columbia, 10-point lead for the NDP. But the, the, the one party that is in second place is, is the Conservatives. You know, this is an area where uh, the BC Liberals used to do remarkably well, and now they're a very distant third place. Hmm. Uh, many have said, that, and even in your poll, I think a third of British Columbians, 32%, would like to see BC United and the Conservative Party of BC merge. Um, what's to say if they did merge that Mr. Rustad could actually bring his supporters over to BC United. I, I know he's a bit of a Pied Piper in the sense that he says he has this support, uh, but a lot of that is over brand confusion. I mean, there's no guarantee that him joining BC United or a merger, that somehow uh, those voters would automatically go to more move towards this new free enterprise party. That is absolutely true. I don't think we can look at the numbers and just go 17 plus 25 equals 42 and there's a competitive election right there. You know, Mm -hmm. there's people who won't vote for either of the options for a wide range of reasons. You know, there may be things that are stopping the BC United voter from looking at the Conservatives as an option. And the same is true uh, when it comes to things being the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um, The part of the complexity here when we're talking about a merger is it's not something that is attractive to the BC Conservative voter. Fewer than half of them are saying, yes, let's unite. The BC United voter is more likely to look at the map and say, unless we do something before October, we're going to be decimated. So mm-hmm. it's quite a delicate balance. It, it would be significant if, if this is something that can be explored properly, but it, it seems to be too late now. Now you have candidates who are rivals in specific writings. Are you going to flip a coin if you decide to merge before October? It's going to be very complicated. The math in BC politics was that liberal voters and conservative voters got together. They did not like each other, but if they get together, you know, two-thirds of the time, they will beat an NDP government. Every time that coalition falls apart, like today, the NDP wins. Um, but when you look at the NDP of today, it is not the NDP of the 1990s. One would argue they are now a coalition of NDP voters and federal liberal voters. Um with this Conservative Party and the BC United Party that's presently there, are there enough conservative-leaning voters to actually lead whatever opposition there is uh, to a majority government, or do they actually have to start attracting some of those federal liberals who have moved over to the NDP to actually form a majority government? It's a very good point. I think what we saw particularly during the pandemic 
was the emergence of what I like to call the Horgan Trudeau voter. This is somebody who is deeply concerned about the pandemic, is happy with the way the BC government is managing it, maybe never voted for the NDP in the past or was sort of on the fence in 2017, looked at Horgan and said, OK, we're sticking with this party because they've been managing things well. And there was a lot of overlap if you look at the way BC voted in that election to the way we voted in 2021. Now, it's a complicated issue now because the federal liberals are not as popular as they used to be. But part of the complexity here has to do with the way in which certain things are operated. You know, I, I look at the federal numbers and the level of animosity towards Justin Trudeau in BC is significant for issues such as housing, healthcare, and also the economy. And you look at the same group that is telling you how they're going to vote provincially, and they say, this isn't David Eby's fault. It's more of a federal issue. So we've become very selective in who we blame for some of the things that we're facing. We see David Eby with a, with a rating that is higher than 50% and his rivals in the 30s. And we see something completely different federally where Pierre Poliev is significantly more, more popular than Justin Trudeau. So it seems to be a case of you know picking somebody you like and being happy with them and picking somebody you dislike and blaming them for all, for all that ails you. I recall the 2001 election. The BC Liberals uh, came roaring into power and the opposition was down to two seats. Uh, I'm not saying they're going to be down to two seats, but this looks like an NDP supermajority in regards to where we're headed. The, the one thing that makes that quite possible if the numbers hold from now till October is uh, the way in which the splits are going to help out. I think what we saw in 2001 was a significant decimation of the NDP and a lot of people who decided not to show up and vote because they knew this was going to be a massacre. But this time around, you could have some writings in Southern British Columbia where the NDP candidate gets to 37% and the rest of the vote is going to be split between other parties. So that is the essence of the argument for the NDP right now. They're happy with this because they could be getting seats in places that they never dreamt of before we had a BC Conservative Party that was competitive. Well, whatever it is, the free enterprise movement's uh, looking towards oblivion in my mind, if, if these numbers hold, as you say, and there's going to be a few of them, a very small group of them, probably with offices next to the boiler room in the basement of the legislature. The way things are going, that's for sure. Mario, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jess, anytime. I'm not sure what to call this segment. Uh, it's actually just a bit of information uh, Global News uh, recently got from the Ministry of Transportation here in British Columbia. Uh, it's, it has something to do with our uh, commuting, particularly uh, the bottlenecks, which of course are our bridges. Uh, so Global News just asked for some um, basic information in regards to what does the monthly average daily traffic look like on our, some of our major bridges. So we asked for Port Man Bridge, Alex Fraser Bridge, Ironworkers, a Memorial Bridge, and of course Lionsgate. So south of the Fraser, uh, heading to the south of the Fraser and north of the Fraser. So I'm going to pick a random year, which is 2020, and uh, the last full year, 2023. And I've, I've chosen May to give uh, uh, folks sort of a sense of, of what traffic looks like. So in May of 2020, the average monthly daily traffic on the Portman Bridge was 133,000 vehicles, 133,316. In 2023, that's May of 2023, it's up to 
175,608. Of course, a lot of that was impacted by COVID, but it gives you a sense of how much the numbers have grown. Now, the previous year in 2019 was about 155. So, you know, you're still seeing significant growth uh, of vehicle traffic on the Portman. That's monthly average daily traffic. So 175,000 as of last year in May. Now, let's go over to the Alex Fraser Bridge for a second. 63,000 people in 2020, May of 2020, um, was the average daily traffic on uh, the Alex Fraser Bridge. Now let's fast forward to 2023. 111,286 was the monthly average daily traffic. So once again, a significant increase for Portman and Alex Fraser. Let's go over to the North Shore for a moment. This is what's interesting here. Iron workers uh, in May of 2020, uh, the uh, the average monthly traffic, daily traffic, sorry, was 87,553. Uh, and in 2023, that went to, uh, just sorry, sorry, I got that one wrong. Sorry about that. 125,992, and it went down to 121,164. So it's actually dropped 4,000 uh, vehicles. Lionsgate Bridge, same sort of thing. Uh, 61,507 in 2019 of May. 57,377. Once again, the vehicle monthly average daily traffic went down. So what's happening here and what can we extrapolate from that? Now, there is only four bridges, I admit that. But the numbers seem to be increasing on the south of Fraser, holding steady or decreasing on the two major bridges heading into the North Shore. And what does that mean in regards to prioritizing, uh, you know, the building of infrastructure uh, here in Metro Vancouver? Joining me to talk about the issue is Andy Yan, urban planner and an associate professor in urban studies and director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Chaz. So I was just going through the numbers, and I hope they weren't too convoluted for, for folks, but generally <laughs> speaking, 155,000 daily users in May of 2019 on Portman, up to 175, Alex Fraser, similar sort of thing, uh, numbers mm-hmm. going up. What does this tell you in regards to just these four bridges? Well, I think it really highlights where the population growth is happening in the region. But it's not only the population growth, but also the type of jobs and where those jobs can find a place to live. And I think that that's really, I think, interesting to kind of see these patterns and really how much this has towards talking about economic development as well as population and transportation and affordable housing in this region. Why do you think, and I'm not sure if you'd have the answer, but why do you think the numbers just on those bridges uh, are, are actually decreasing to the North Shore? Well, I think it may actually have a lot to do with the kind of work that that population is living on the North Shore, that, if you will, I think there are perhaps many people living on the North Shore who are in jobs where they can uh, stay at home, where they can work for part of the week at home versus, say, those who live south of the Fraser. I mean, here's a really interesting number to add on to everything else. Uh, One-third of everybody who works in transportation and warehousing in Metro Vancouver lives in Surrey. Uh, A quarter, 28% of all the manufacturing jobs in Metro Vancouver Those people live in Surrey. And those are jobs where you have to show up, where you have to show up at a place to work as opposed to telemute or to work from home that I think really highlights the changes between the two, the bridge traffic. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you think this impacts our decision making in regards to physical infrastructure uh, and just spending of public dollars? What should we extrapolate from that and how should that impact our decision making? Well, I think that it really emphasizes the importance of transit investment south of the Fraser. 
that I think that it's a transit investment through which isn't just necessarily just getting in and out of, say, downtown Vancouver, but is a network of transit that goes through the each respective city south of the Fraser and can interconnect them as opposed to, say, have them drain in and drain out of the city of Vancouver, whereas, say, in the district of North, or the, sorry, the North Shore, it's going to be a much, I think, different kind of pattern that perhaps goes into really how we can and where we prioritize our transportation projects. Uh, there was a talk many years ago in my early days as a reporter to actually build another crossing to the North Shore that would come into Vancouver, uh, at, it would be a tunnel, and it would come out on First Avenue. And of course, it was kibosh. There was lots of uh, lots of, uh, of uh, debate, as there always is with any. That's right in my neighborhood, Jazz. That's a terrible <laughs> idea. That's a horrible idea. Oh, I know, I know. We fight over everything, but but in yes. regards to uh, making those decisions, are we set yeah. up properly? And what I mean by that is, every two or three months recently, we've had a TransLink right. press conference with the same mayor saying. We need money for TransLink. And Brad West will be there. Malcolm Brody will be there. Brandon Locke will be there. They'll point to the provincial government. They'll go to the federal government. They'll travel to Ottawa to get some more money. And usually the answer is no at this point anyway. Um, Do we need to be set up differently in regards to how we fund this stuff now? Because, I mean, TransLink has an existential challenge in that every time somebody buys an electric vehicle, no one's paying Mm -hmm. money into the TransLink fee to pay for it. Unlike the rest of us, Mm -hmm. still drive fossil fuel vehicles. So uh, do we need to change the way we generate dollars how we pay for this stuff i think so i think that that's going to be one of the kind of key challenges in terms of the future governance of the region is how are we going to pay for transit how are we going to even maintain our existing road infrastructure that given the kind of decline in gas uh gas gas tax revenue um how might that system look like in terms of 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 payment of of relief uh, financing the kind of transportation system that keeps our region moving. Um, is there a region that does this well? I mean, I just I get frustrated with with three levels of government, uh, four if you add in the Metro Vancouver Board. Uh, is there a region in this country, that, or even in North America, you think does does it well in regards to having funding available, or you know, dealing with some of these challenges in in a quick enough form? I think everyone's struggling. I, I think the thing about North America is the fact that we are very much cursed with a system that was completely built on legacy technology, a.k.a. the single occupant car. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a legacy technology that we have to slowly get off of and in itself then look at other systems of transportation, of mass transit, of really something that is by far more sustainable and look at, say, how other systems build their uh, build-in finance as well as infrastructure um, around the world. Hmm. Andy, thank you for your time. I just found these numbers incredibly fascinating because, mm-hmm. you know, I keep hearing about North Shore's growing <laughs> and they've had a SkyTrain study out there. And I know they are growing, but when I look mm-hmm. at the numbers, I go, they're actually decreasing. And I tell you, the minister is going to look at that and go, wait a minute here. I need, I don't need to rush to, 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 to do something over there. I'm just going to extend Highway 1 further into Abbotsford and Chilliwack because that may generate me some votes. Well, that brings in other problems, but then I think it's certainly talking about the importance of transit and investment in trans and in sustainable transportation south of the Fraser, as well as land use and housing uh, development. So I think that it's how integrated the system is and really how, I think, complicated it is. But I think it does come into rethinking our priorities. Andy, thank you. Always a pleasure. We weren't planning to uh, uh, do this segment, but uh, there was an announcement uh, just, well, a couple of hours ago. 
uh, or a post by Premier Danielle Smith of Alberta. Uh, she posted something on X, formerly Twitter, um, in regards to uh, a new pronoun disclosure policy for schools uh, in Alberta. There's also uh, uh, comments about uh, other restrictions, including transgender treatment and sports. Take a listen to Alberta Premier Danielle Smith uh, and her comments uh, today on X about what is coming to Alberta. When it comes to classroom instruction on subject matter involving gender identity, sexual orientation, or human sexuality, we will be requiring parental notification and an opt-in requirement for each instance a teacher intends to give formal instruction on these subjects. Furthermore, all third-party resource materials or presentations related to gender identity, sexual orientation, or human sexuality in our K-12 school system will need to be pre-approved by the Ministry of Education to ensure the materials are age-appropriate. For a minor, age 15 and under, the government will require parental notification and consent for a school to alter the name or pronouns of a child. For 16 and 17-year-olds who choose to alter their name or pronouns, parents do not need to give consent but they must be notified. We know that nearly all parents, even those who may disagree with the decision of their children, will love and care for their children no matter what choices they make. However, in the handful of rare situations where one or both of the parents reject or become abusive to a child who identifies as transgender, we have child protection laws that will be strictly enforced. Matt, that's a lot to announce, and I'm sure uh, it'll ignite debate in Alberta, as it did in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. They've brought in uh, similar changes, but didn't go as far as Alberta uh, has announced today. We're joined now by uh, contributor Jerry Mayor Judson. First of all, just overall from what you've heard, and I I didn't understand why they put music underneath that comment today, but they decided to do that in Alberta. But uh, uh, tell me, Jerry, uh, your thoughts first and foremost on just the overarching conversation and and what the the Premier said today. I love the calming classical guitar in the background. (laughs) It's so ridiculous when she's delivering just these knockout punches to a bunch of people's rights. So I don't love it. Obviously, I like the one tiny, tiny bit in that seven minute video where she did say, well, we are going to get more maybe experts for uh, gender affirming health care in Alberta. I think that's good. I think that because the current uh, thing now is Quebec really kind of leading the way. Just gen- even people from British Columbia go to Quebec for so, gender affirming surgeries. So, yeah. So if you're going to get a surgery, if you if there, if you do require transgender surgeries, mm-hmm. this procedures are performed in Quebec. That's yes. where most people go. And, yes. and, and the premier said they're going to work hard to attract more specialists to Alberta. So the that's surgeries good. can take place in the province. That's the one. That's good. good. But let's talk about <laughs> the, the core issues here. Uh, so Alberta parents will need to give permission before a student age 15 and under Mm -hmm. can use a name or pronoun at school other than what they were given at birth. Uh, the, the, the premier also said those that are 16 or 17 won't require permission at schools, but you'll still need to let their parents know first. So, uh, what is wrong with that? I think that she and she tries to address this, the odd situation where a parent is not supportive mm-hmm. and where, you know, if they if if their child is being themselves at school and the parent would disagree with that. And then the notice goes back to mom or dad. And then that child might be in a precarious situation, whether that is, you know, they might get kicked out. They might say, you can't live with us anymore. You're not my child anymore. What have you? Mm -hmm. I think that that might be a touch more traumatic than may, I don't know, than having to stop hormone therapy at some point. I don't know. So just, I don't like that. I think that the child should be safe to be themselves at school. 
I think that if that's the one place where they feel like they can be themselves, then it seems like the government is sort of taking that away. And I talked to actually one of my friends in Alberta, she's an elementary teacher, Mm -hmm. and she said that there is uh, quite an intense reporting system, specifically in the Alberta education system, where a lot it's it's easy to make a complaint against a teacher. So say if a teacher is using a child's pronouns that maybe they didn't get parental consent to use, but the teacher is doing this out of respect, someone wrong gets wind of it, someone's parent gets wind of it, that mm-hmm. teacher can then be reported, investigated, and then resources are kind of lost that way. Where do parental rights start or end, I guess. I'm not sure how to phrase this, but, yeah. but I mean, as a parent, I still, and I get where you're coming from, I would still want to know. Then maybe maybe you're a parent that would make your child feel safe to do so. And that sounds, that's good. I think the decision. I would, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an it, lots of lots of parents. Most parents love their kid no matter what. Yeah. But it is the situations where that love is conditional, where I get worried that they would be notified. And I don't. I'm not a parent, and I don't know where parental rights should start and end with in terms of a child's self expression at school. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's that I don't have an answer so, to. So, do you think to protect those minority of kids that are going to be very in, in a very hostile situation? that we need to be, we shouldn't be doing this to, to protect the minority of kids who may have parents who are very hostile to it, may be dangerous for them and, and in many cases, you know, can lead to suicide as well, right? That's that what is I think. more important than dealing with the other 95, 97, whatever it may be, yeah. percent of parents who say, we love you, we accept you, and we're going to get this through this together and, and we're going to take care of you. To me, yes, absolutely. I think if it saves one kid, I think that's perfect. I think that that, but again, I'm not a parent and I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to not know what my kid isn't, what my kid is up to at school. I don't know what it's like to not know my child. So I think my advice would be, well, have an environment at home where your child feels like they can be themselves. I mm-hmm. think that's great. And I think that, you know, if you're doing that, you're very much on the right track. What I'd also kind of like to talk about is that Premier Smith's rhetoric of saying decision and choice a lot. I didn't like that saying that, you know, your child's self-expression, their gender identity is somehow something they are choosing to do or that they might be confused about. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, I don't know, as sure as she was about her gender identity is as sure as a transgender child is sure about their identity, I think. Now, partially, uh, the other policy announced today was that the the premier included banning all children under 17 from having top and bottom surgery, though bottom surgery is already limited to adults and banning children 15 and under from taking puberty blockers and hormone therapy, unless such therapy has already started. That's what I'm reading here in front Mm -hmm. of me. But teens age 16, 17 can start hormone therapy as long as they have permission from their parents, a physician and a psychologist. That's the other thing that was announced. Mm -hmm. The other thing I found interesting is that the new policy also forbids transgender women from competing in women's sports leagues. Smith said the government will work with leagues to set up a co-ed or gender or general neutral divisions for sports. What do you take? What do you make of that? So, um, okay, this transgender athlete thing is to me a Trojan horse for something we call trans misogyny. Whereas we say transphobia is a general sentiment against trans people, but specifically trans misogyny is a sentiment against trans women specifically. We see a lot of this. It was in the bathroom discourse and now it's in the sports discourse. I don't understand why. Um, But when we're talking about transgender athletes, 
transgender men are as equally as represented in athletics as transgender women, but we don't hear a peep about them because we don't see them as men. I think we don't see them as any stronger or any better than their, you know, their fellow men Mm -hmm. who are competing in athletics. But I, I I don't believe this in any way, but you could say that a transgender man is a better is better suited for elite powerlifting because lower center of gravity, more stable hips, bigger leg muscles, all of this stuff. But they say in every single sport ever that a transgender, a young transgender lady would would have an unfair heavy quotes advantage. So I think it's just another way to uh, enact trans misogyny. Give us a call on the open line. I, I think there's going to be a lot more support for what uh, the premier uh, is planning to do, uh, whether you agree with the politics or not. Uh, I think there is a a good group, a huge bunch of people out there, parents especially, that want to know what's happening in school. Uh, I, you know, I think the whole, uh, you know, the, the the transgender women competing in women's sports, are there cases? Yes, there are. But ninety nine point nine percent of the cases is not going to impact anybody's kid. It's just not. I mean, there's a lot made of it, and I, and I, I get where that's coming from. But it's such a small minority within a minority. Oh yeah. But it's the issue of whether or not. Uh, you know, uh, students uh, need permission from parents in regards to changing of names or pronouns if you're 15 or under. And even though 16 or 17 uh, won't need permission, but schools will need to let their parents know first. It's very interesting. BC's mental health and addiction minister, Jennifer Whiteside, says ending the province's three-year drug decriminalization project won't save a single life as the overdose death toll continues to rise in our province. Uh, Ms. Whiteside made the statement as the one-year anniversary of the start uh, of the uh, project. The goal, of course, is to reduce shame and make addicted people more comfortable reaching out for help. Now, on January 31st last year, Health Canada issued BC a three-year exemption under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, allowing adult drug users to carry up to two and a half grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and ecstasy for personal use. Uh, the exemption came amid an overdose crisis that has claimed almost 14,000 lives in BC since a public health emergency was declared in April of 2016. Uh, last year alone, uh, 2,500, over 2,500 people died in our province. Now, this conversation uh, is occurring just as another conversation is occurring in Oregon. Uh, yesterday, we had a segment on recriminalization where people have been concerned that uh, they are not seeing uh, some of the things that were promised under uh, Oregon's drug decriminalization uh, program. Oregon paved the way, of course, as the first state to decriminalize drug use. They uh, passed Measure 110 in 2020. Some have said that after three years of this law, the law itself has not delivered on the promise that the voters thought they were getting. Uh, Today, the governor of Oregon has declared an emergency in the city of Portland. So the conversation around drug decriminalization is an ongoing one. Here's a report from CBS reporter Adam Yamaguchi on uh, the Oregon governor, Tina Kotick, declaring a state of emergency today. The state, the county and city declare a fentanyl state of emergency. The state of Oregon appears to be taking a new approach in addressing the opioid crisis plaguing its largest city. The 90-day emergency order for fentanyl use issued by the governor establishes a command center and more coordination between emergency management and health services. However, it does not include additional funding. The goal is to give the city's residents a chance against the extremely addictive opioid. It is a drug that compels users to redose every 45 to 90 minutes. People in the throes of a fentanyl addiction can hardly walk into a clinic without having to use again. Everyone has Narcan? Oregon paved the way as the first state to decriminalize drug use, passing Measure 110 in 2020. 
Instead of incarcerating addicts, it focuses on addiction recovery. You're going to call one of these numbers? We were with Portland police last year as they handed out citations to fentanyl users in the street. My full-time job is fentanyl, and basically all roads lead to fentanyl in downtown Portland. But in the years since Measure 110 was passed, overdose deaths have continued to rise, prompting local leaders to call for more than just the emergency order, but the recriminalization of drug use. We've had three years of this law that has not delivered on the promise that voters thought they were getting. Ebony Brawley doesn't want to see Oregon's law repealed. The Portland resident says it helped her avoid prison and turn her life around. Because of Measure 110, I was able to change my story and break those chains, you know, and provide a life for myself and for my daughter that she probably wouldn't have had otherwise. For CBS Mornings, I'm Adam Yamaguchi. Well, joining me now to talk about uh, the program here in British Columbia is Kennedy Stewart, former mayor of Vancouver and current director of the Center for Public Policy Research at Simon Fraser University and author of Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. Mr. Stewart, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, a very interesting topic, especially uh, on, on this day, on this one-year anniversary. Let me just talk about, uh, touch a little bit on the broader issue. How would you describe this past year in regards to what has transpired in British Columbia? What's your idea of success? Well, it's been a complete disaster, as have all previous years where we've had record numbers of uh, toxic drug deaths. Um, I don't know what else to say. The families that have lost loved ones, the folks that have from people who have died or from folks that have overdosed and had traumatic brain injury. And we see it from the coroner uh, who seems to be yelling into the wind about the the threats to our community and just the devastation this is is reaping. And, And I think what's especially troubling is that it's the number one killer of young people in our, our province is, is toxic drugs. How do you uh, gauge success for this drug decriminalization program? We're into year one is over. We have two more years to go at this point. How, how, what's the measure of success? Yeah, so for me, I mean, like, the two things seem to be conflated. It, first of all, if I look at the toxic drug deaths of the coroner reports, you mm-hmm. know, and when I was mayor, I would get a an email in my inbox every Monday that told me how many people died in the city. Um, I would think the overall thing we have to focus on is is to reduce the number of deaths per day in British Columbia. We've got seven, about seven people dying per day in the province, um, and we need some kind of strategy that moves that down to five, four, three, two, and then and then to none. But none of those have ever, have emerged yet. Um, so that's going to take a whole bunch of things, um, and decriminalization as I've said many, many times, it's just a very small part. It, um, you have to remember that the police asked for this. In 2019, the National Association of Police Chiefs said we should decriminalize drugs because arresting people with substance use disorder isn't doing anything for them at all. Putting them in jail isn't, isn't getting them on a road to recovery. And, you know, arresting young people that are just trying drugs for the first time if you want to know how tough that is, uh, just ask people that were arrested for cannabis possession and had many, many years of their lives where they couldn't cross the border in the U.S., they couldn't get jobs, it's on permanent record. So, you know, I agree with the police that criminalizing uh, drug use and the possession of small amounts is is not the way to go. And now, I, I brought, I, we just played that story of Oregon, and we and we had a segment on this yesterday as well. Mm-hmm. That's a liberal state. They led the way in the United States, and there seems to be a change in opinion 
there that while they don't want to walk away completely from drug decriminalization, they certainly don't feel after three years it has worked. Uh, do you worry that we're going, to, we're, we're going to reach the same conclusion in this province because Oregon will play a role? We looked at Oregon as one of the guides in regards to the direction we should go, and they're saying, look, it's not working. It hasn't delivered what we thought it was going to deliver. Do you worry that that conversation, uh, you know, seeping into British Columbia, it's already here, one would argue as well, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that, that there's, a, there's only so much the public will accept, the public opinion will uh, move against drug decriminalization? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're kind of living in a in a climate of fear these days, and politicians on all sides are ramping up fear to scare the population, uh, and they're kind of grasping at at uh, really any issue they can grab, you know, whether it's housing or uh, drugs, and you know, the the focus from from the political uh, political side of of trying to ramp up the fear rather than using good research and you know policy analysis to figure out how to reduce the death rate is uh, we've moved so far away from that it's just really hard to have a conversation mm-hmm. uh, that's that's fact-based so you know when I was mayor I just followed the advice of the chief of police and uh, dr. Bonnie Henry and other health advisors who are saying decriminalization it's not a silver bullet it's not going to you know you're not going to drop your uh, toxic death rate from seven people a day to zero but it will uh, help people get into a more a health-based stream of, of addressing their problems. But, mm-hmm. but like, so people who say they're against decriminalization are, are guests for criminalization, which means that if you catch somebody with any amount of illicit drug, you should arrest them, charge them, put them to the court system, and put them in jail, which doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense either. So that's the kind of side that we're not really discussing. What does it mean to uh, recriminalize drug behavior? That's what it means. And then the police will be swamped with, um, you know, there's, in the corner said there's about 250,000 people in this province who are drug users. So what do the police do? Arrest 250,000 people and put them in jail? Like, it just seems that we're not really thinking this through in a logical way, and it's because it's so emotional, right? But, it's, there's the fear and there's the death, which makes it hard to talk about. Do you think it would have been easier to sell if we had more treatment centers and perhaps focused a little bit more on enforcement, or at least focusing on some more, you know, at least more accountability, number one, and of course the enforcement, or enforcement side, more resources for treatment, and then the public would be coming along when it comes to drug decriminalization as well? Yeah, I guess, I mean... You know, now everybody's pointing to saying, well, it's just more treatment that's needed to, to, to quote-unquote, kind of fix this problem. But, like, again, if you think of the young people that are dying of fentanyl, they don't need treatment because they're not, um, you know, addicted to drugs. They're just going to a party and trying it for the first time or second time or something, and, and the drugs are toxic and they're dying. So there's no amount of treatment, like, you're not going to send them to a supervised consumption site. You're not going to send them to any kind of treatment center because they're not long-time drug users. So, I mean, there, there's it really you have to really go and talk to the person, that you look at the people that are being affected by this and overdosing and dying, and think, you know, think of them, what, what do we need to help them? And I can tell you what won't help is arresting them and putting them in jail. That's not going to do anything. So, um, and I think... All your healthcare and law enforcement professionals will basically agree with this. Um, you know, so. 
uh, Kennedy, thank you so much for your time. Look yeah. forward to chatting with you again. I know it's a very complex issue and, as you say, very polarizing as well, but we, we've got to keep talking about it, that's for sure. Thank you so much for your time okay. today. Thank you. On May 5th, 1974, the Vancouver Whitecaps took the pitch at Empire Stadium for their first ever match in the NASL. 50 years, around a half a dozen different leagues and multiple iterations of the franchise later, the Whitecaps aim to push to new heights in their golden anniversary season in MLS. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single fan who is able to take in every game in person, both home and away. So, an integral part of the fan experience is the broadcast. Lorimer, Lorimer brings it into the Sounders zone, chips into the penalty area, looking for O'Brien, cleared away in the air by Megson, recovered by Sweeney for Cross. The 1-2 back to Sweeney, Sweeney chipping in front, a header scores! Peter Bairdsley! That's Ian Michaud, the now-retired local broadcaster who was the Whitecaps play-by-play man for eight seasons on the radio. The game in question was the first ever played at BC Place when over 60,000 fans filled the stands on June 20th, 1983 to watch Vancouver defeat the Seattle Sounders 2-1. The situation that day was quite different from when Michaud first took the job. He worked for CJOR, the now-defunct radio station that acquired the Whitecaps broadcast rights ahead of the 1977 season. Lacking an established play-by-play voice to call games for the young franchise, which had an average attendance of under 10,000 fans the previous season, they turned to one of their in-house talents. One day I'm working a desk shift at OR, and the manager, Don Wall, comes into the room and said, uh, I understand you called some junior hockey in the interior. Do you have any tapes? So the next day I brought in a tape, and I get called into the office a couple of hours later, they were waiting for me, looking very solemn and serious, wondering what the heck this is all about. I wasn't expecting what happened next, which was the offer of the soccer play-by-play. I was reluctant to take it at first, because back then I liked soccer, but I didn't know very much about the game. Despite his hesitations, Michaud let himself be talked into taking the job. It was during his first season that the buzz around the team began to take off. Michaud points to the Whitecaps' home game that summer against the New York Cosmos, led by international icons Pelé and Franz Beckenbauer, as the catalyst. That day, a then-record 30,000 fans watched the Whitecaps, led by head coach Tony Waiters, come away with a thrilling 5-3 victory. A lot of coaches against a powerful team like the Cosmos would have tried to play keep things tight, try to steal a result. But Waiters wanted to put on a show for the big crowd, and the Whitecaps went on the attack from the kickoff, had a 2-0 lead before the Cosmos knew what hit them, and the big crowd that came to watch Beckenbauer and Pele went home talking about Buzz Parsons and Derek Posse and Waiters' Whitecaps. And that was when the buzz started, and that's when things started to pick up. Crowds certainly spiked for the rest of that season, Season ticket sales went through the roof in the off-season, and in 1978, the Whitecaps were outdrawing the BC Lions for the first time. That wave of momentum grew over the next couple seasons, culminating in the Whitecaps winning the NASL Soccer Bowl in 1979. Michaud was there in New Jersey's Giant Stadium to call a championship win for his hometown team. The team had just the perfect attitude, confident and full of swagger, ready to go all the way. And you could feel that around the team at that time. The team returned as heroes, with up to 100,000 people lining Robson Street to watch the championship parade. 
Sadly, those good times didn't last, and the NASL as a whole collapsed in 1984. Thankfully, Vancouver wasn't left without a soccer team for long, as the Vancouver 86ers were formed and joined the new Canadian Soccer League. Michaud wasn't the play-by-play man, but served as the team's PR director and public address announcer. The 86ers eventually regained the Whitecaps' name, bounced from the CSL to the APSL, then the USL, and then eventually to MLS in 2011. Here it comes into the Whitecaps area. Flick towards goal. It's there. Saved by Chuck O'Gorr. And the Whitecaps are Canadian champions once more. Today, the primary play-by-play voice belongs to Blake Price, veteran broadcaster and host of the Sakaris and Price show. He took the job in 2021 while working for TSN and now calls games on both Apple TV and on the radio for AM 730. The uh, executive in charge of live events called me and, and said to me, uh, would you be interested in calling soccer? The answer was an emphatic yes for that and rolled through a couple of seasons at TSN and things got a little bit dicey when TSN lost the rights and Apple took over everything because I wasn't sure if I would be moving forward with the MLS product, but uh, but here we are. Like Michaud, Price stepped into the job with a team that hadn't made any recent waves, with the Whitecaps coming off two of their worst seasons in a decade and the entire league in flux due to COVID-19. But that 2021 season marked a turning point, and Price's tenure has seen back-to-back Canadian championship wins and two playoff appearances in three years. There were times where I think fans were probably feeling a little bit desperate, and I wouldn't blame them. And, and for us as broadcasters who, who just want to broadcast a fun game, uh, it doesn't all rest on wins and losses, but you do want excitement. You do want to be a part of something exciting. And often to be a part of something exciting, you do need some wins along the way. So it's nice to see that evolution from these really lean years of wins to the point now where the uh, Whitecaps going into this season have significant expectation. The 50th anniversary season is a landmark one for the club, both for its historical significance as well as what it could mean for a team trying to grow its presence in Vancouver's Canucks-dominated fan culture. Playoff expectations are here and the upcoming visit from Lionel Messi's Inter-Miami is generating the same excitement that Pele and Beckenbauer brought all those years ago. There's going to be a bunch of high-watermark games where there's going to be a lot of people in the stands, there's going to be a lot of buzz, and if they can perform on those nights, I mean, that's better than any advertisement on a roadside sign, you know, you're, you're giving people thrills inside the building. There's always some pressure when it comes to being the one in charge of narrating those big moments, but it's also the chance to have your voice etched into the history of the Whitecaps, a history that's now 50 years and counting. There's always that little bit of nervous, fun energy for a broadcaster going into a big game. You want to make sure that, hey, when they replay this in years to come, make make sure it sounds like you know what you're talking about and, and and that you're conveying the gravitas and the excitement that was in the building that day. Who knows? Uh, we've all seen the grainy footage of uh, a Whitecaps victory parade from the 1970s. Well, let's let's put this in 4K HD and, and get a modern-day version of it sometime soon. That's the hope for everyone involved with the club, for this season to be one that can emulate those highs of the past and bring back that big game feeling once again. Right now, the Whitecaps going out into the center circle to salute their fans, and the fans responding, waving their flags and saluting a Whitecap 2-1 victory. Thanks 
for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.